Welcome to the final episode in the Bright and Morning Star, our study of the book of Revelation. This episode, number 49, is called Come, Lord Jesus. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who's been teaching us all year about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint Temple experience. The fruit of all this work is in a new book, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation. We hope you'll pick up a copy from Amazon. Yeah, right now the whole church is studying the book of Revelation in Come Follow Me. My book, The Bright and Morning Star, explains how the temple is the key to understanding this wild and fascinating book of Scripture. We hope you'll read it as well as the book of Revelation and let us know what you think. Let's finish our year-long podcast with this last episode that we call Come, Lord Jesus. Right. In the very last verses of Revelation, the Apostle John seals the book with his testimony. He says, quote, I, John, saw these things and heard them. And that's in verse 8. So as the veil now closes over his vision, John testifies of its reality, as all true prophets do. Think of Joseph Smith, who used much the same words as John, when he said, quote, I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. That's what Joseph said about his first vision. Right. And so it's hard to argue with someone who says, I saw Now, the last 15 verses of chapter 22, from 6 to 21, they form a kind of epilogue in which the Lord instructs him to share these things with the saints. Quote, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So John has experienced what we call the apocalyptic vision. Now, that's an opening of the veil so that we can see our Father's entire plan from beginning to end. So at the end, he announces that he is going to write it all down and share it with us so that we will also understand the plan. Now that's a pattern, okay? A prophet who receives this apocalyptic vision, he always writes it down and passes it on so that we can also understand it. Remember that John lived in the ancient Greco-Roman world where the theater was the most important form of entertainment. So John tells his story in the form of a play. That's perfectly natural uh, for him to do. But on another level, it's also what we experience in the temple. When you think about it, what we experience in the endowment is a play. It's a drama. At the end of a Greek drama, there was usually a summing up of the moral lessons of the play. In an epilogue, that was usually spoken by an individual actor or by the chorus before exiting the stage. And similar epilogues often close episodes in the scriptures, right? In the Book of Mormon, for example, they're constantly using the phrase, and thus we see, right? Mm -hmm. So um, kind of summing up the lesson you're supposed to get. So in the epilogue of Revelation, the Lord sums up the message of the book with this warning, this admonition. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So this has been the whole point all along, is keep the commandments so that you can, you can have a right to enter 
the, the celestial kingdom. Now, in many Greek plays, there's a god figure who shows up to set everything right. It's, it's called the deus ex machina, the, the, the god figure. And so we also have that in, in Revelation. We have Christ who comes to set everything right. And in the epilogue, he promises three times, Behold, I come quickly, three times. And this is to comfort us in our trials, <laughs> and all I can say in response is what John says, well, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I agree. He can't come soon enough for me. But there are a lot of people who are afraid of the coming of the Lord. What do we say to them? Interesting. Revelation is now by far the most popular book of the scriptures in the media. People talk about it constantly. Media people are quoting from it all the time. Why? To stoke fear. Right. Because fear gets, gets ratings. Right. right. Fear sells. Uh, mm-hmm. Because this is a society that is obsessed with apocalyptic fears. And some people make a lot of money exploiting those fears and inciting hatred. In particular, uh, movies depict uh, grim end-of-the-world scenarios, right? How many horrible movies are there about, you know, some dystopian end-of-the-world? Popular media figures... They're always predicting Armageddon, right? Or, or the collapse of civilization, which is usually brought on by their political opponents. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, if you vote for them, it'll be the end of the world. So it's called shopping the apocalypse. Oh, wow. I call it buying and selling in the temple. Oh, wow. That's very fascinating. So you mean like the money changers in the temple? Listen, there's a very, very big business out there build up to terrorize people with the book of Revelation. Lots of religious figures on the media, they, they spin these lurid fantasies of the future where non-Christians suffer a seven-year tribulation under a supervillain, an antichrist, and then they're all sent to hell together. <laughs> okay. yeah. So the, these, these Christians seem to take delight in the thought that so many people will suffer, right? Suffer now and suffer in the future. But of course not them, because they'll get you know, raptured. Um, they get twinkled, okay? And a lot of them are excited about the war in the Middle East right now. Oh my gosh. And they hope it gets really bad, because oh. they see it as a sign of the time. So one thing we can try to do is to calm people's fears. First of all, there will be no political antichrist who will enslave the whole world. There is no antichrist mentioned in the book of Revelation. Somebody cooked that up. Today, many people believe in the antichrist as a definite person. And these people have taken the idea out of context and transformed and imposed it on the last days. It is not scriptural. And that is the opinion of professors Draper and Rhodes at the BYU, and I share that opinion. It is not scriptural. The term antichrist applies to anyone who actively opposes Christ, right? And John uses the term, but not in Revelation, he uses the term in his epistles. When he talks about antichrist, he's talking about uh, apostate from the church. Mm-hmm. Quote, ye have heard that antichrist shall come, Even now there are many antichrists, he says, whereby we know it is the last hour. The last hour before what? 
Well, he, he lived 2,000 years ago, so we're not talking about the last hour of the world. He says, we know it's the last hour. Last hour of what? Well, for him, it was the downfall of the church, mm. which he knew was coming. Right. Okay, the, the great, great downfall. The apostasy. Yeah, of, yeah. of the church. Mm -hmm. So what he was talking about was people who were bringing down the church. Those were the antichrists of the time who, by the way, were um, probably, and this is a bad thing to say, the leaders of the church who were selling and politicking their way to prominence in the church. Mm. But, of course, the real antichrist is Satan. Right. Okay. So there won't be an antichrist dictator who will rule the world for seven years and bring terrible plagues on the earth. And we will all have to bear his mark, the mark of the beast. Uh, no, that's, that's a fairly recent invention, that idea. Going back to the Reverend John Darby in 1830, he came up with this notion of um, a seven-year tribulation where uh, Antichrist will rule the world. And then there's a popular set of books called the Left Behind series that came out in the 1990s. And they sold millions of copies made movies and so forth. And it tells all about what's supposed to happen in the last days. But it's all fiction, okay? Even some church members, Latter-day Saints, they prey on other members who are um, naturally intrigued by Revelation. And they stream videos and they sell books. And they hold firesides based on unsound gospel study and heavily influenced by politics. For example, there's a supposed vision of President John Taylor circulating through the church describing the destruction of the last days. Our church historians and authorities say the document is probably, is most certainly not genuine, but that hasn't prevented an influential LDS writer from basing a wildly popular book on it. Okay, And many are duped by this uh, revelation fan fiction, which uh, leads some of them even into cults and, and even murderous cults. So we can get tangled up reading Revelation until we realize it's not a riddle or a puzzle. We need to pray to study the book's historical context and to ponder the sacred symbols the Lord uses to teach us truths we can't learn any other way. Revelation provides a lot of material for fear mongers, people who want to spread fear. The grim aspects of the story can harrow up the soul, but as the prophet Mormon said, these things must surely be made known so that we will understand the consequences of choosing evil. And perhaps just as important as the catharsis we experience in the temple drama where we purge to fear because the Savior is there to reassure and provide salvation to those who are faithful. How can reading Revelation calm our fears about the last days? <laughs> That's a good question. Revelation usually scares people. <laughs> but I think, like you said, it can actually calm our fears. It can be a real source of consolation. And John surely intended it that way. This is quotation from S. Kent Brown, BYU scholar. He says, um, one of the chief features of this type of apocalyptic prophecy is the very strong assurance that God is in charge of events and that he will bring them to a proper conclusion, unquote. So far from increasing our anxiety, Revelation should decrease it. The Lord said, 
see that ye be not troubled, for all I have told you must come to pass. And uh, that's in uh, the Joseph Smith Matthew, uh, verse 23. Also, Revelation calls us to action. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book, says chapter 22, verse 7. And the Greek word for keep is tereo, which means to watch carefully, to act upon the signs that John's giving us. Now, Revelation describes the covenant between the Savior and the saints as a ketubah. You remember what that is? Yeah, it's a contract, marriage contract. <laughs> marriage contract. A... It's the sacred contract between bride and bridegroom. And in Jewish practice, once sealed, nothing may be added or removed from the stipulations of the ketubah, which is why he says, quote, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. That's verses 18 and 19. If, if you knew how many times on my mission the people would use that quote from Revelation against us in the Book of Mormon, right. I was like, y'all don't know what you're even talking no. about. They yeah. took it way out of context. Well, now we know what it, what it meant to John's time, to right. the people of John's time. It meant, oh, this is a ketubah. And you're not supposed to add anything to this contract or take anything out because the sealed book in, spoken of in Revelation is actually a, a marriage contract. Mm. So you're not supposed to take anything out or put anything new in. It is set and sealed. There's a Scottish scholar, uh, Kevin Strand, who says that this epilogue is a typical covenant call upon witnesses. It is a blessing and curse formulation, and the rest of the book embraces the specifics of the covenant, the stipulations. In other words, when we accept a covenant, we also accept the blessings of living up to it and the penalties of not living up to it. The key is to recognize that the book of Revelation is a covenant description of a covenant. So here we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. Why don't we know when it will be? Remember, only the groom's father knows the day and the hour of the wedding. Do you remember that? I do remember that. <laughs> okay. It burned into my brain. <laughs> but, Made so much sense. Yeah. But while, while we wait for the ketubah to be fulfilled, the Lord sends us what the Jews call siblanut. It's a Hebrew word that means special presence. And these siblanut are special presents that the groom gives to the bride to remind her of his love all during this time of probation, okay? Between the, remember, between the betrothal and the wedding, mm -hmm. there's this time of probation. Mm -hmm. And the groom is supposed to send little gifts, <laughs> okay, to the, to the bride all through this period. Uh, these are gifts. For us, they're gifts of the Spirit. Right. From on high. Right. The words of prophets, whispered revelations for our daily lives. The scriptural term is tender mercies to comfort and encourage us in our tribulations. So if we're wise, we listen and watch for these gifts and prepare for his coming, carrying out as best we can our covenant of consecration to his work and glory. Okay, but I'm going to ask anyway, when do you think the Lord's going to come? All I know is that the bridegroom is on his way. Okay, according to Revelation, I am coming, he says. Okay. He says it over and over again in Revelation, emphasizing that his arrival will be sudden. 
the glorious wedding is at hand. Would you read chapter 3, verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It's a very, very tender verse, right? For me, that verse from Revelation sums up the whole meaning of the second coming. He's going to come to me. He'll say, I stand at the door and knock. This is a Hebrew idiom relating to marriage. On the day of the wedding, the groom would come to the home of the bride with his father, right? And they would knock at the door. So the great question for me and for each one of us is, when he knocks, will we open? Right. Do we want him to come? Are we indifferent or fearful? Or are we watching for the bright and morning star to arise in our hearts? Do we pray as John does? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, yes, please come in, Lord Jesus. And soon, I love the last verse of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. Amen. Okay, thanks for reading that verse. Now, before we close our podcast series, I would like to express thanks to you, Sam Bracken, my dear old friend, and a great example of a disciple of Christ, in my opinion, for all your help. Thanks, Sam. And don't leave us quite yet. We have an exciting announcement to make. Breck and I will be podcasting once every two weeks throughout the year 2024 on a completely new topic. We call it Encircled in the Arms of His Love, the Book of Mormon and the Temple. Breck, tell us a little bit about this new series. Okay, starting the second Sunday in January, we'll be discussing how the Temple helps us understand the Book of Mormon, and vice versa. The Book of Mormon is the central resource for Come Follow Me in 2024. We will learn about the grand governing symbolism in the Book of Mormon, which is to be encircled in the arms of the Savior, not just in the world to come, but in this world, and how we can experience his love now and especially in the temple. I'm so excited for this. So be watching for our new series, Encircled in the Arms of His Love, The Book of Mormon and the Temple, starting Sunday, January 14th. And don't forget to pick up your copy of our book, The Bright and Morning Star, about finding the Savior in the book of Revelation. Thanks for your time.